Hello, and welcome to Documents in Detail, a webinar and podcast series that explores the core documents of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, John Moser of Ashland University, and panelists Eric Sands of Berry College and Abigail Vector, also of Berry College. In honor of the upcoming 2022 congressional elections, we've chosen to focus this episode on the evolution of party politics, and in particular, on the political machines of the late 19th century. Join us as we take a deep dive into honest graft and the emergence of a social security network in Plunkett of Tammany Hall. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am professor of history and chair of the uh, Department of History and Political Science, as well as of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. I would like to welcome you all to another edition. It is the first episode of, I don't know, is this our sixth or seventh season or something like that? Anyway, it's Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically significant documents. We encourage all of you joining us this evening to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box. Please, not the chat box. I just want to be able to check one place, so please use Q&A. We'll try to get as, to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you'll be receiving an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from tonight's program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from the various volumes in our core document series. They are also available at the teachingamericanhistory.org's extensive, indeed voluminous, document database located at tah.org. The subject of tonight's program comes from the volume on political parties. Here it is. Edited by Eric Sands. The document we're going to be discussing is Plunkett of Tammany Hall. To help discuss it are Eric Sands himself. Eric is Associate Professor of Political Science and Department Chair of Political Science and International Affairs. Uh, and uh, he, is, uh, he is joined by uh, Abigail Vector, Assistant Professor of Political Science uh, uh, Oh, you both you were both at uh, Barry College, correct? Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so before we get too much farther into this, uh, I'm asking that everyone do me a favor. Take a moment to answer the two questions that are going to be coming up on your screen. Ah, there they are. Uh, our staff at TAH is trying to get a sense of what type of of professional development we should offer to our webinar participants. Your feedback will help us determine how to best serve our fine audience of educators. All right, so I'll give it a couple seconds for that. Hmm, maybe I should answer this too. I have not taken one of our graduate courses. I've taught them many times. All right, Eric, Abby, Glad you could be with us tonight. Glad Thanks to for here. having us. This is a super juicy document. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, maybe you could each start out by by saying a bit about, uh, especially you, Eric, since you're the editor of the volume, 
what is so great about this document that it merits inclusion among, oh, I don't know how many are in this volume, uh, 38 documents. So it's a, very, it's a pretty select group. Why this merits inclusion among that 38 select? Oh, well, I mean, it's a great question. Um, the, the, the Plunkett, uh, I mean, the, this is just an excerpt of uh, a larger work um, that, that uh, a series of lectures that Plunkett delivered. Um, and it really puts on display uh, a lot of how ward bosses in the big cities operated uh, during the heyday of political parties or the golden age of parties, which you know, roughly 1876 to 1896. Um, Plunkett was uh, was a character, which is evident uh, from the reading. <laughs> uh, you know, very very funny guy, well loved by his constituents, um, very you know very popular uh, in his city. Um, but uh, what he reflects in the essay is, I think, something that is 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 uh, reflective of how a lot of these ward bosses and a lot of these party bosses you know, sort of understood how they operated uh, in these major cities. Um, that my my corruption is good for everybody, uh, which is sort of the argument in a nutshell. <laughs> So, I mean, in part, it's making an argument that it's not really corruption because nobody's getting hurt. Um, you know, no, nobody's getting screwed over. Um, you know, I'm just taking advantage of opportunities when they come along. And so most of it is examples of things like, you know, what we would call insider trading. Um, so, you know, he, he points out uh, later on in the, in, the, in the lectures and stuff that the, the budget books always balance you know, when they come in and do the audits, all the money is accounted for. Uh, so, you know, nobody's stealing from the public till. Uh, but, uh, you know, he says, I get these opportunities um, uh, as it comes along to make a profit, uh, to make a little money uh, on the side. And, you know, I do what any sane individual would do in my position. I take advantage of it. Um, but what gets lost sometimes, so, I mean, in, in part, this is a nice representation of the way parties are oftentimes portrayed um, in the latter part of the 19th century. You know, people think of parties at that time, they think of corruption. Um, there's more to the story, though, because that corruption served a purpose. Um, that money wasn't just going to line Plunkett's pockets. It was also going to serve the needs of his constituents. You know, that money's being used to buy, uh, you know, turkeys for his constituents at Thanksgiving, hams at Christmas. Uh, it's paying for funerals uh, for indigents uh, or for people who can't afford uh, funerals. Um, it's paying for, you know, people to help find jobs, uh, to provide housing, uh, to provide uh, uh, education uh, to immigrants. So, I mean, it's... You know, the parties are doing a lot of the social welfare services that government is not doing at this point. Um, and the way they're going to fund themselves is going to be through these, well, you know, corrupt acts <laughs> that they're engaged in. 
Um, so, you know, it, it's it's not such a simple thing to just look at it and say, oh, my goodness, you know, I can't, I can't believe somebody would act that way and that, you know, these these party officials are um, are so corrupt. Uh, that corruption ends up benefiting an awful lot of people. And I think that's one of the reasons the constituents tolerated it, uh, because they knew they directly uh, benefited from it uh, and why public officials tended to look the other way. Abby, care to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, ditto to what Eric said. One, it's it's a really fun piece. I teach urban politics, and we always read this piece, and students always love it. Um, just the honesty with which we see someone writing about their uh, activity that may or may not seem um, legitimate <laughs> is somewhat refreshing for, for students, and they always really enjoy it. Um, and like Eric said, it kind of paints this picture of uh, political parties during this era that, yes, in some ways reflects common complaints we hear today about modern political parties, but also reflects this embeddedness that these politicians at this time had in their communities that we don't see in the same way. Um, as Eric mentioned, you know, this this honest graph that he's talking about is is going to fund uh, the needs of the community, but the intimate needs, right? He knows who has passed away and can't afford a carriage for the funeral. He knows which family needs the turkeys during Christmas time. Um, and, and it's a really nice kind of foil to the social reformers that come after kind of this era, who for the most part were outsiders coming in and weren't aware of these same um, community needs. They were as intimately embedded into uh, these districts as the ward bosses were during this particular era. So it's kind of a nice um, foil to what comes next too. And I found that students really enjoy reading it. All right, thanks. Uh, so maybe you could give us a bit of background about Plunkett himself, as well as the institution known as Tammany Hall. Either or both of you? Yeah, well, I mean, Tammany goes back to, uh, I mean, the American founding. Um, it was uh, you know, started out as a, as a kind of social organization uh, that grew into a very powerful political organization uh, in New York City. Um, uh, Martin Van Buren uh, was a major figure uh, in the development of Tammany. Uh, and in you know creating it as probably New York's most important and most powerful political force. And when he goes national uh, in the 1820s, uh, Tammany has left a very powerful machine uh, in New York. And it never really ceases to be one uh, until we get uh, into the 20th century and we start having the reform of the uh, the the city machines that starts taking place especially civil service reform, where we're going to replace the patronage system uh, and the spoil system. Um, you know, so Plunkett kind of fits in among, you know, uh, you know, Tammany and its, its many charismatic, um, you know, ward bosses and uh, uh, city leaders. Uh, certainly not nearly as corrupt as Tweed. Um, you know, Tweed is... Tweed is, is oftentimes held up as the image of, you know, the boss uh, in this time period. And the fact was, he was so ridiculously corrupt that even party leaders didn't really take him very seriously. Um, they were, for the most part, quite relieved when he got carted off to prison um, and uh, was replaced uh, uh, by John Kelly, uh, who, you know, basically 
found Tammany Hall a horde when he came in, um, and he reformed it and turned it into a political army. Um, and it became a model uh, for party organization in other cities uh, around the country. Uh, but uh, there's even vestiges of Tammany in New York today. Um, you know, it's not it's not what it once was. Uh, but the old the old Democratic Party uh, still still has you know for the most part ironclad control over the city, <laughs> um, and you know has uh, a lot of linkages to public offices and uh, you know control over um, a, a lot of uh, goods and services in the city. Uh, so I think that legacy is is still today somewhat intact. Yeah, for sure. And I would second everything that Eric said. The nice um, thing about using this particular document in this particular story um, in teaching this era is it is somewhat representative of other machines throughout the country, right? I'm from Kansas City originally, so we love to talk about the Pendergast machine. We always get to talk about Truman a little bit in my classes, and that's always a fun thing to do and how um, he was linked to the Pendergast for a while. But to be able to draw parallels between um, Plunkett and, and Tammany Hall and other political machines, especially in, in key urban cores throughout the United States is um, another reason why this document is so helpful. It, it seems to be that one difference between the kind of control that the Democratic Party has today versus back then was Tammany did not reign supreme, right? I mean, there, it, it's, every now and again, you had coalitions of reformers and Republicans who would, uh, uh, who would come along. He even mentions the election of 1901, which was a disaster for them. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I know that sometimes when Eric teaches this piece, we kind of pair it with the the Why the Ward Boss Rules piece by Jane Adams from 1898. And that's kind of a really great um, pairing to this piece, too, because she speaks to this new strategy that they kind of have coming in to try and defeat um Tammany Hall and in the the stronghold they have in their city and and how they can be successful and what they need to do to be competitive in these districts and as you mentioned right they experience some success and Tammany Hall is is left kind of having to respond to that and again capitalizing on the fact that these are outsiders who are coming in trying to be competitive um we are from here, we are embedded in this community. But as you mentioned, it's not a um, stone cold grasp on, on the election outcomes. Um, and I think that Jane Adams piece kind of points to why uh, we see that competition happening again at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, um, and why we start to see that competition grow. Eric? Yeah, Tam Tam Tammany could get out of step with public opinion. Um, that there's there's certainly no question about that. Uh, you see a number of instances where Whigs and then later Republicans uh, win control of the state of New York, uh, and you know they, it's only the city uh, the Democrats still control. And you know it, it's usually the Democrats, you know, in Tammany are are running the state as well. Um, but that's not always the case. And, you know, one great example of this is, is in 1860, um, the city of New York, under Tammany's leadership, tries to secede. 
Um, they they try to join the secession movement. They even send delegates to uh, the, the the Confederate uh, Constitutional Convention, um, and you know try to have input uh, into how the uh, the Constitution is going to be written. Eventually, they back off of this and. Um, you know, they, they, they quiet down. Um, but uh, it's kind of remarkable how much independence they sometimes had. Um, but they did run into two obstacles at times and had to, you know, recalibrate and uh, find out how to reacclimate themselves with the, uh, with the electorate. That's really interesting. I, I'm wondering, did Tammany have any connection to the draft riots in 60, 1863? Uh, I believe they had some connection to them. Um, you know, uh, Tammany struggled mightily, as most Democrats did during the war, uh, with trying to figure out how to maintain themselves as the legitimate opposition. Um, and I mean, it was uh, there, there's. I, I have to admit, after. <laughs> uh, over a decade of research on the Civil War and, and Reconstruction, I've I've gained a certain amount of sympathy for the Copperheads in the North um, for the position they were in. It is very hard to be an opposition party during wartime, uh, especially during the Civil War. Uh, how do you how do you express saying, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're for the Union, but we're against every conceivable way this war is being prosecuted um, without being called traitors? Uh, and that was that was a very fine line uh, that they had to that they had to walk. Um, and they didn't always do it successfully. This is something I've encountered in my own research on uh, the uh, anti-interventionist movement in World War II. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, America First, the America First Committee doesn't really know what to do. And they, there's a debate, do we keep going and then become yeah, yeah. critics of the administration while still saying we need to fight the Japanese or do we, do we fold? And, and eventually those in favor of folding one out. There's uh, a question from uh, from Andrew Nappy. How might Plunkett's behaviors parallel the land speculation that our founders engaged in during the early years of the Republic in the Ohio country? Well, I'd say one difference um, is that a lot of the land speculation was simply for, you know, self-gain. Um, you know, it was, you know, various members of the founding generation looking to make a profit um, to fill their own bank accounts. They weren't looking to benefit others uh, in what they were doing. Whereas, you know, when you're talking about people like Plunkett, and I certainly don't want to suggest there aren't party leaders who are not out there who are just about, you know, self-gratification. Um, there certainly were, but you know, for somebody like Plunkett, who I, I think was a more more of the archetype of of a ward boss, um, it's it's about it's about you know some measure of self interest, but there's also a big measure here of serving their constituents, uh, of trying to contribute to the public good, um, and uh, that's that's the part I think, as I said, gets overlooked. Um, is is there's a, a real concerted effort here. Uh, to contribute to the betterment of society. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things he's trying to do. They need resources to do this, though. And this is one of the easy ways uh, that we can get those resources. Abby? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you think about even his argument here, right? I, I saw opportunities, I took them, but they're 
going, this money is going towards you all, right? Don't let these people come in and tell you that what I'm doing here isn't for you. It is, right? And that truth comes out at Christmas time, at Thanksgiving, when you're sick, when you're in need. And that is something that is indicative of a lot of the machines at this time. And I think as Eric mentioned earlier, this is a time in which the government is not providing for the social welfare in a way we understand it to today. These parties were operating as a social safety net in these urban centers, and it does make them um, distinct, and it's important to kind of remember um, why they were doing this, right? And again, I don't want to come across as saying uh, this corruption was all was all great and, and we can excuse it all away because of the, the outcomes, right? That, that's not the case. But I do think saying this corruption was solely for uh, self-interest, solely for um, Plunkett's own um, quality of life, if you will, is is ignoring a key part to this story. I, I, I've done a little bit of uh, research into um, Charlie Murphy, and, uh, and and my sense is that that uh, that that Richard Croker was was actually almost as bad as Boss Tweed, and then Murphy comes along and kind of it's almost like there's a pattern here with Tammany. You've got the guy who pushes things too far, and then the leadership realizes yeah. that, that that we've got to we've got to fix something, and, mm-hmm. and then and then you've got someone like a Plunkett, or or in the tw- or later in the 20th century, a Murphy who who cleans things up a bit. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, I think that's exactly right, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know there's something kind of predictable about that. Um, you know the 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 spoils you know get so tempting uh, for the party leaders uh, that they just start dipping into the till anywhere and everywhere they can they can find it um, and so you do have um, you know you, you you do have the tweeds and and others that you know are are stealing from the city um, you know they're taking from the public budget uh, they're doing all kinds of you know very illegal things. Uh, in order to put money away and uh, and to engrandize themselves. Um, and then, you know, you do have these kind of party reformers that come along um, and, you know, are sort of on a platform of needing to clean up things, uh, you know, getting the party streamlined, getting it efficient once again. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, as I had mentioned with, with Kelly, I mean, that was, you know, what, you know, that was what drew people to his leadership was, you know, uh, Tweed was an embarrassment. I mean, he was, he was, there's no way around it. He was just an embarrassment. Um, and so people wanted someone to come along and kind of clean things up, uh, and, you know, return the party to its former glory. Yeah, and part of this, too, that I think um, hasn't really been included in the conversation thus far is how how these party bosses were able to maintain power, right? We're talking about corruption in terms of, of finances here, but there was also a lot of corruption when it comes to votes, and that's something we certainly can't um, ignore in this part of the story, too. And as those social reformers came in, it, it was certainly about um, stopping stealing from the public budget, right? But it was also about voter reform in really um, consequential ways and ways that we still certainly feel today. Got a couple more questions from our viewers. 
David Shine asks, uh, regarding the cities, the urban machines, did they commonly look to state and national capitals for funds, or did they have to raise all... Oh, I, 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 maybe he's not talking about machines, but city government in general. Did they commonly look to state and national capitals for funds, or did they have to raise all their own taxable monies? Specifically in this era of the end of the 19th century? Is that what he's asking? That that's the question is uh is 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 non-specific yeah no worries um so there is some variation here that across the country right that needs to be acknowledged something that i um always talk about in in urban politics is i think we forget how neglected our cities were uh, by state and national government during this era and one can argue uh continuing on through history right we're talking about entities that have no uh, real constitutional authority and are really subjected to um state and national control but often in ways in which are um unfunded right so um, there's certainly variation. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush there, but in, for the most part, when we're characterizing cities and city governments during this time and, and beyond, right, there's a lot of self-reliance that needs to take place. And Eric, you can jump into if you have more specifics about this. No, that's really, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and the only thing I'd add to that is, is that one of the things we don't really realize in this contemporary era of national parties um, is that parties were highly localized um, in the 19th century. That's where the real power was. There was actually very little power at the national level. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's also where the bulk of fundraising took place, uh, was at the local level. And the money would kind of trickle upwards rather than coming in at the national level and trickling downwards. Uh, so the localities and the cities were, in fact, very powerful in the party system. Uh, because they were the ones drawing in, you know, all of this money, uh, you know, through dues and assessments and, uh, you know, all kinds of contributions from wealthy individuals. Um, and, you know, that was the, the, the stuff that the state parties and the national parties would be able to make use of um, in elections and for, you know, other party purposes. So, uh, there's there's a lot of deference that's going on to these bosses and, and to what's happening in these cities. And one could make the argument, too, that this is when the parties are at their strongest, right? The self-reliance piece of these these urban centers allows them a lot of, as Eric said, power, right? And, and that's reflected in the power of the parties themselves. This is a, a golden era, right, for political parties in the United States. And part of that is be, due to its localized nature. How much power did uh, machines like Tammany, and we can think of other, you know, other, Kansas City or whatever, how much influence did they have at a national level? How much did they have to do with, for instance, the choosing of presidential candidates? Well, as you get into the latter part of the 19th century, uh, the party bosses, of course, played a very significant role in the selection of presidential nominees. In fact, they were the ones at the conventions who are in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms, um, sipping brandy and um, talking amongst themselves about you know, who the nominees should be. And then once the bosses reach a consensus, they go out and dictate to the delegates who they're going to support uh, and, and who they're going to uh, uh, vote for. 
Um, the Republicans tended to be a little more successful on this model than the Democrats because the Democrats had adopted the two-thirds rule um, when the convention system was first started. And that meant, of course, needing to get two-thirds of the delegate votes. It wasn't always so easy uh, to get all the, the bosses on the same page, or even when they were, some of the delegates could defect um, and still throw the convention into some turmoil uh, in terms of getting an eventual nominee. But it is kind of remarkable how much influence the bosses wielded um, over these national processes. They also had a, a say-so uh, with the Senate um, in political appointments at the national level. Uh, so they would submit names of people that they wanted to have selected for positions in the federal bureaucracy. Um, so they they certainly did have a major impact and a major influence um, in national politics and in American politics overall. Yeah, and if we're looking to specific, not to be too Kansas City <laughs> for you all, uh, but if we're looking to specific examples, right? Later on in the 20th century, we in the in the 40s, right? We see Truman is launched essentially by boss Tom, Tom Pendergast, right? He he kind of sneakily refers to it as the Democratic organization in Kansas City, but we're talking about Pendergast and we're talking about the Pendergast machine who was essential in, in bringing him to the presidency. Okay. And imagine before the 17th Amendment, when uh, it's state legislatures that are choosing the senators, then the then machines would have had a, um, a huge impact. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another question from David Shine, uh, and, and one that I'm going to build on a little bit. Uh, David asks, how did Plunkett and Tammany build coalitions of different ethnic groups? And my, my, my gloss on this is, uh, when I think about the golden age of Tammany, I think Irish. But it, they, they couldn't have, or I don't think they could have, Mobile had such support if it were just the Irish they were working with. So how do they, how do, how do the Irish reach beyond their own specific group uh, to win over, you know, especially as we're getting toward the end of the 19th century, uh, Italians, Germans, uh, East, East Europeans of various types? How do they manage that? In short, I mean, everyone was getting a turkey, <laughs> right? I mean, it wasn't limited to the ethnic groups of the leaders at that time. There were needs to be met, and, and the organization wasn't really uh, deciding who got a turkey, who not, who didn't, depending on um, ethnicity at that time. Yeah, and, and it's also important to remember that the for a long time, um, the Democratic Party in New York, uh, you know, made made their bones on the support of immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't it wasn't really about ethnicity um, as much as it was uh, getting these immigrants to support the Democratic Party by forming attachments to them right off the boat. Um, so one of the first things that would oftentimes happen: instant naturalization. Mm -hmm. They'd get a judge to come down to the docks, and in one fell swoop, you're all American citizens. Oh, and by the way, we have an election today. <laughs> let, me let me take you to the polls. <laughs> so, well, we're going to take you to the polls, and you can vote early and often um, and, and, as, as you're there. 
Um, Go shave I mean, and we'll come back and get you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that routinely happened. Um, and, you know, they would help, you know, these immigrants, you know, with finding housing. They would help them in finding jobs. Um, uh, they'd help them with the language barriers. Uh, they had, uh, you know, parties had resources devoted to helping the immigrants learn English uh, so they could be more competitive uh, in uh, the economy. Um, but during elections, they made special appeals uh, to reaching out to immigrants. They would uh, release party you know, pamphlets and materials in hundreds of different languages, um, appealing to all of the different ethnic groups strewn around the city. Um, so that's, that's really it. And, and so the, the Whigs and then later the Republicans, they they go through a lot of turmoil trying to figure out how to respond to this because you know on one hand they you know argue that they they want to try to make inroads among these immigrants um but a lot of their party coalitions are very anti-immigrant <laughs> you know they they don't really want the immigrants here in the first place um so they can't really cozy themselves up um to these immigrants coming in uh, and, of course, they just don't have a whole lot of influence in a lot of the big cities anyway. Uh, so it seems sort of like a lost cause to try to to try to win them over. Uh, just letting everyone know, we have a completely open queue. So if anybody has questions, we uh, there have been some episodes of this show where where we've just had way too many questions that we could answer. That does not appear to be the case tonight. So if you have a question, please get it in there. I want to ask something related to my previous, uh, or to, to, to David's previous point. It involves religion. Um, I get the sense that, you know, certainly by the, the later part of the 19th century, Tammany is, is very much has a, has a Roman Catholic vibe to it. Um, does that in any way pose problems for the kind of coalition that they're building? Or is, or, or is the coalition overwhelmingly Catholic anyway, so it doesn't much matter? Yeah, my understanding is the coalition is overwhelmingly Catholic at this time. But also, um, votes were votes, right? They, they weren't drawing distinctions among these individuals. If you were coming in and if you were going to show loyalty to the machine there weren't these same divisions within i'm not saying there were cultural clashes because certainly there were we're talking about a lot of people in a small uh place right very close together but for the machine's sake they weren't drawing those same distinctions between their constituents if you could get here and you could get to the polls you were good to go. Um, and Eric, you may be able to speak to a little bit more about what the makeup looked like of the of the machine at that time. Um, but my understanding is that there weren't um, those same distinctions that were drawn. Yeah, uh, that's that's my understanding as well. Um, you know, that for the most part, the Republican Party was the party of Protestantism. Um, and, you know, generally far more so than the Whigs were kind of willing to not give in to a lot of anti-Catholic sentiments so that that doesn't become as much of a division in the latter part of the 19th century as it did in the beginning of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, so like compared to the, the, the Whigs trying to grapple with the know-nothings, mm -hmm. um, you, know, uh, you know, where we have the Catholic riots um, going on in cities uh, and 
you know, people are actually getting killed um, over over this kind of stuff. Um, the the Republicans are more subdued um, about their Protestantism, uh, but it it is still very much a Protestant party, uh, and you know, Catholicism is you know is is going to be lodged firmly with the Democrats, um, even though there is sort of cross religious lines. Um, in the Democratic Party as well, but they're more harmonious. Um, they're they're just able to mad- manage the religious conflict uh, better than the Republicans are. Yeah, of course, Tammany produces the probably the best known Catholic of the 1920s. Al Smith comes out of the Tammany tradition and mm-hmm. goes on to be a presidential candidate. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Thea Burris. Hi, Thea. Uh, she asks, how does Plunkett relate to Huey Long? Seems like there are some similarities. What do you think? Yeah, I think there are are some similarities between them. Um, you know, Huey Long is obviously on a much bigger stage uh, than Plunkett is. Plunkett is is a ward boss in New York. Uh, he's he's got a relatively small constituency compared to being governor of Louisiana and concurrently being senator from Louisiana <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, being seriously considered as a as a presidential candidate. And, you know, the what if, if he had not been assassinated, um, would that have uh, resulted in a in a possible viable presidential run? Um, but the the populism um, that's that's at work there, I, I think, crosses over uh, between the two. Um, you know, giving giving the people what they want, uh, you know, attending to the people's desires, tending to their needs, uh, having this this view that I really know uh, what the people want and need, and I'm the only one that can provide it, um, and trying to sell people on that image that I'm the only one that can provide this to you. Uh, I, I I think there's there's a a, a very strong linkage uh, between those two models. Yeah, no, I I would um, agree with with what Eric Eric shared as well. I mean, we don't want to oversell right Plunkett's influence during this time. He is a very interesting character and one that had a lot of power um, and one that is representative of a lot of what uh, how the parties were operating during this time. But as you say, kind of putting him in his uh, right size is important when making those comparisons too. So uh, Gloria Sesso has a question. I'm going to mess with that a little bit. Uh, She wants to know about how Tammany and the political bosses lost their power. I think this is a big question. Um, We've talked about how uh, the the machines such as Tammany made for a more vibrant, dynamic party culture than what we have today. We also talked about how uh, this was a system that, in theory anyway, benefited not just the bosses but everyone. You knew, right? That you knew the boss could provide turkeys and he'd throw parties. And there's another great chapter from. Obviously, you can't include the whole damn th- damn thing in uh, <laughs> uh, in this in this collection. But another chapter about the life of a ward boss and how many hours. Uh, not that that. I'm not talking about the boss at this point, but just sort of the, 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 the lieutenants, I guess, who are out there pounding the pavement, who, who find out who, yeah, yeah, maybe you want to say, say something about, about that in the course of getting to this, uh, getting to this question. Okay. 
if it made for a more vibrant and dynamic party culture, a more fun politics, and uh, and it worked for everybody, why in the world did it go away? Well, words for everyone except those who were losing <laughs> during this time, right? Um, we had, you know, the social reformers, Jane Adams at this time, other people in this camp who were coming in, noting the corruption and really trying to challenge the way this this party system was working. I don't know if any of them um, would come in saying their intention was to um, make the parties boring, right? And to kind of decrease uh, the fun and the excitement and the energy surrounding the parties during this time. I think that was, most people would say that was probably an unintended consequences of the reform they brought with them. But they were also, uh, they tended to be to be middle-class people who were coming in, uh, felt as if they had the moral high ground on these immigrants, on these um, people of lower economic, socioeconomic status of this time and said, hey, let us come in and and fix this corrupt system that you think is benefiting from you uh, or benefiting you, but is is not right. And and a lot of those reforms that were implemented in the early early twentieth century are sort of responsible for the eventual um, decline and weakening of our political party system. Again, maybe less so with the intention of. Um, I love how you talk about the parties as. Fun, right? Because they were. I mean, it was a big party. These were times when neighborhoods were getting together um, and eating and drinking and and being in community with one another in a really vibrant um, societal life. And I don't think the intention was to diminish that, but that was certainly an unattended consequence. Yeah, Abby is exactly right. I, I, it's it's impossible to underestimate how dynamic the parties were um, at this time. Uh, I mean, so one of the measures that really stands out is voter turnout. Mm -hmm. um, so during during this era, voter turnout is exceeding 80%. I mean, eight out of every 10 voters um, are turning out to vote. Uh, you know, when you talk about us on a good election, <laughs> getting about 55%. Um, of, of voters turning out. The parties did an almost miraculous job um, at turning people out to vote. And, you know, I, I remember when, you know, parties were still a, a dynamic presence in New York City. Um, and, you know, there's sort of some vestiges of Tammany still left. My grandmother talking about, grew up in Brooklyn, um, talking about Election Day um in uh in new york and you know the parties are there at nine o'clock in the morning when the polls open at your door knocking you know we have an election today when when are you coming out to vote uh you know i'm i'm, I'm getting breakfast together and <laughs> get some errands to run but I'll, I'll be down later okay you know if you need anything if you need transportation if you know you need us to look after the kids for a while you know whatever we can do for you you know we'll we'll bring so, you know, noon rolls around, knock, knock, knock. <laughs> Notice you still haven't made it to the polls. Um, you know, you sure we can't help you out and get, get you down. I mean, they were just persistent, just legions of party workers um, out there. And, I mean, when you got down to, to the polling precinct, I mean, there's, there's a barbecue going on. 
there's there's rides for the kids. I mean, it's it's a carnival atmosphere. It's like the whole the whole election day is a big celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you made elections like that today. I bet you could increase turnout. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, you actually made it enjoyable to vote uh, instead of these sort of like sterile voting uh, conditions that we're that we're in now. But I would add a couple of things to what Abby said about uh, what happens to the, 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 the bosses and to the, the, the machine parties. Um, the Australian ballot comes along. Um, so we now have voters voting in private instead of publicly. Uh, so prior to this, you basically put your ballot in a box. And so everybody knew who, how you cast your ballot. And that was important if you were getting a patronage position. Uh, the party had to know that its corruption was going to pay off, and now they can't be sure of that. Uh, you know, you've promised somebody a hundred bucks to vote for you. Uh, you want to make sure that they're going to vote that way, and now you can't. Uh, so that takes, you know, that that takes a lot of the steam uh, out of the party sales. Uh, civil service reform in the cities, um, taking the patronage away from the parties. That takes a lot of their resources away from them, uh, which dries up a lot of the opportunities uh, that they have to secure the loyalty of voters um, there. And I'd add in just rising educational levels um, in the country. Uh, People come to see that they don't need to rely on political parties to know how to vote um, the way that they did in the past. Uh, that they're, you know, they're just, I can make my own mind up about who I'm voting for. And uh, that also, of course, opens the door to things like split ticket voting. Uh, so I'm not even going to vote a straight party ticket anymore. Uh, so I, I think there's there's a number of dynamics at work there um, that it explains why, you know, the parties taper off in, in the cities. Uh, I remember reading... Uh... Clark Clifford and George Elsie wrote this famous memo to Truman about the upcoming 1948 campaign and said, it's not about the machines anymore. Uh, It's about mobilizing interest groups. We got to get, have labor and the farmers and African-Americans. They have to be on our side. The part the the, the machines are are about, are about done for A, a question I wanted to ask though, how does the saloon fit into uh, fit into Tammany and, and, and machine politics in general? You got it, Eric. <laughs> I, I didn't hear the the. Sorry. How does the saloon, right, the institution of the of the saloon and liquor in general and 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 beer, uh, some of my favorite subjects, uh, <laughs> fit fit in with uh, with with the, the life of the political machines of Tammany in particular? Well, uh, so one of the first things I'd say is uh, voting often took place in saloons. Uh, it was one of the places that, which would be awesome, uh, by the way. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> I, you, do you know how much easier 2016 would have been if I could have voted in a saloon? <laughs> Um, so, um, but, uh, you know, the saloons are gathering places, uh, for people to be able to converse, uh, to, uh, you know, talk about, you know, day's events to, for the parties to, um, you know, disseminate propaganda. Um, the, uh, parties for the people who couldn't read, uh, the parties would oftentimes place 
an individual uh, in the saloons who would read newspapers to the room. Uh, so people could catch up on the news of the day. Now, of course, it was a party newspaper. <laughs> so they're not, they're not getting objective news. They're getting it through a partisan lens. Um, but uh, they're, they're still able to be kind of informed about what's, what's going on. Um, the, the saloons were also places where uh, the, the parties were very instrumental uh, in uh, putting together uh, the uh, marching clubs um, that would march in the torchlight parades. Uh, they usually were formed out of groups of men at the saloons who would solicit a wealthy benefactor. And then they'd get the march, the matching uniforms, uh, and you know they'd practice marching, uh, and then they would lead these parades that would have tens of thousands of people, um, you know, marching behind them with torches in the evening. I mean, the spectacle had to have been just beyond description. I, I it's one of one of my wishes would have been to be able to go back and see one of these torchlight parades. Uh, because I, I think this, the spectacle itself must have just been overwhelming uh, to, to see. But uh, oh, everybody lined up to see what's going on. And, um, you know, and now sometimes they would get a wealthy benefactor to support them and then they'd blow all the money on alcohol um, and wouldn't actually put together a marching club. But, uh, you know, that was a risk you ran uh, when when you supported one of these groups. And I think the picture we're painting here of this era is really how um, central political parties were to community life. And the saloons were sort of the setting with which this um, these activities took place, right? So if we think about it as a story, we have these wonderful characters and the saloon is a really central setting uh, in which many of these activities take place. Would you say then that Prohibition is more a cause of the decline of the of the machine or a consequence of it. Well, Kansas City, fun fact, didn't really have prohibition. The Pendergast made sure that was the case. Um, so in some... New York City, right? It was barely enforced in New York City. I... Right. Right. Um, and so um, I don't know how consequential it, it was. And, and Eric may be able to speak more to that history than I can. Um I don't get the sense that it really had too too much of an impact. Um, it was a way to maybe contradict an us versus them sort of dynamic for the conflict that was taking place between the party bosses and these social reformers coming in. Um, but as for impacting um, their activity, I'm not, I I don't get the sense that it had that large of an impact. Yeah, I, I agree with Abby on that. Although one significant thing that prohibition did do was tie the political parties into organized crime. True. Um, and the illicit activities that were going on uh, in especially places like Chicago and New York mm -hmm. um, and, and other locales and stuff, uh, you know, the, that provided new opportunities for corruption and corrupt behavior. Uh, that the the progressive reformers thought they had rooted out, and prohibition kind of brought it back um, onto the radar again. Interesting. Um, Gloria Sesso asks, uh, to what extent could we really say Tammy, Tammany was a small-D democratic organization? Ooh. 
Yeah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let, let me answer that this way. Um, pre, pre-1860 Tammany Hall and post-1860 Tammany Hall. Um, pre-1860 Tammany was, you know, uh, uh, largely a, de- a little d democratic organization, um, as the parties were in general. Um, they were highly participatory. The conventions were highly participatory. Uh, the people were actively involved uh, in party life. Uh, representatives from the parties uh, constantly took their bearing uh, from public opinion. Uh, and the parties are serving as conduits of communication between the people and their elected representatives. So they're all kind of tied together, and public opinion is is very important to the parties. I think that becomes less the case after 1860, and as we get into this golden age of parties, um, the 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 party. Well, part of the problem is the parties just become massive organizations. I mean, we're talking about organizations with millions and millions and millions of people, and you can't run an organization like that democratically. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be hierarchical. You know, you have to have a few people making decisions on behalf of everybody. And that's essentially what happens with the boss system um, is, you know, the the bosses you know, are making the big decisions for the people underneath them who are then making the decisions for the people beneath them. Um, and it's it's very militaristic um, in its in its overall organizational structure. Okay, well, we're uh, coming to the end of our of our time. Uh, one question that I always like to ask toward the end, um, we've got an audience, mostly, if not entirely made up of teachers. What is the uh, what is the best pitch you can make for why they should find room in their busy curricula to uh, to to have their students look at this document? Yeah. So this is um, as we kind of said at the beginning. A, it's a fun one, and I'm always I'm always a sucker for including something fun that the students are going to be engaged and interested in. But it also um, sheds some light on an era that I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding and confusion about. When my students come to me at the college level, there's a lot of uh, confusion around the story of political parties in America. We understand them a little bit in the modern context, but as for their history um, in the United States, there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion about kind of the um the the era of its strength and then how they became kind of the weakened institutions that we see them to be today. Um, And so this is a great opportunity to kind of open that conversation and talk about this golden era of political parties that often gets overlooked and does have real consequences for the political system today. Uh, That's a great way of putting it. Um, That was one of my major reasons for wanting to include it uh, in the volume. Uh, was to kind of shed some light onto this period of time that uh, I have found my students don't seem to know that much about uh, and come in, as Abby said, with very, very uh, misguided um, understandings of parties and party politics uh, during this particular era. And, you know, it's what I've 
it doesn't matter what level party class I'm teaching, undergraduate, graduate, you know, one of the, the goals is always to let parties stand, you know, for themselves as they were in the 19th century, um, to, to give people a taste of what party life was really like in the 19th century. And I think that's one of the things this document does really well, uh, is, is it gives a very strong flavor to, you know, the psychology of parties and party bosses uh, and, you know, revealing you know, the, the two sides, you know, the, the obvious corruption, which, you know, the kids already know about. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the social welfare uh, function of the parties that they don't know about. Um, and, you know, one of the great things about this document is, you know, is asking the kids, do the ends justify the means here? Yeah, you know, would 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 you be supportive of a ward boss engaging in this kind of behavior, uh, given the good that comes out of it, um, or would you be, you know, one of those progressive reformers who just sees corruption in this and wants to end it at all cost? Um, you know, which 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 view would you take? And I have found very enlightening and uh, very robust debates that have gone on uh, in my classes uh, over that question. Oh, John, I think you're muted. That was that was bound to happen eventually, right? <laughs> I want to I want to thank both of our panelists, Eric and Abby. I, I also want to thank our participants uh, participants for their questions. If you did not have an opportunity to take the professional development poll at the beginning of the webinar, it's back again. Uh, I, somebody said that they couldn't see it. I, I hope that that problem is resolved. Anyway. Uh, please do so now. This feedback is going to help us make uh, decisions regarding the types of professional development opportunities that we offer. As a reminder, you're going to be receiving an email within the next week, if you registered for this, web this webinar, uh, that will include a link for further readings. It will also contain a link to the archive webinar. We hope you will share that link with your colleagues and get it out there on social media. Help us spread the word about what, we, what we're doing. If you've enjoyed tonight's webinar, please consider taking a, a graduate course in our MAG program. We have our online ones year-round, uh, and then we have our week-long intensive seminars on campus in Ashland. Uh, Eric and Abby both teach in that program, as do I. You can find more information about our course offerings, as well as all sorts of other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. As I said before, this is the first episode of Documents in Detail for the 2022-23 academic year. The program will return on Wednesday, October 26th. We will continue our focus on uh, political parties. Eric is going to be back with us again. Uh, what are we? What document are we talking about the, the, then? Is it, it was uh, Progressive Party Platform of 1912. Ex excellent. So we'll get a, a bit of a, a, a shift. We'll see the shift from the, the 19th century party system to the 20th century party system. In any case, thank you all for uh, joining us tonight. We'll look forward to seeing you again next month. Good night. Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on Plunkett of Tammany Hall. For more information on our webinars, 
in personal educator professional development programs, free document library, and graduate program. Please visit us at th.org.